Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. From Russia, China, and the Middle East to trade wars, climate change, and terrorism, global affairs have rarely seemed as complex and dangerous as they have been over the last few years. But does foreign policy matter in the 2020 presidential election? To address this question, I invited Brookings expert Tom Wright to join me on the program. Wright is a senior fellow in foreign policy at Brookings and the director of the Center on the United States and Europe. In the conversation, Wright takes on the age-old question of whether foreign policy issues matter to voters in presidential campaigns, and also discusses what America's relations with the world could look like under a second Trump administration or under a new Biden administration. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. Well, Tom, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to see you in these parlous times. I want to start with a question that we recorded back in the spring from a student that is still very much relevant to the conversation we're having today about foreign policy in U.S. presidential elections. And here, let me play it for you. Hi, my name is Grayson, and I go to school at the University of Texas at Austin. My question is, given the president's important role in shaping foreign affairs, why hasn't foreign policy been a bigger part of presidential election conversations? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And I think the short answer is that there's just so many things going on that amongst the voters, I think, foreign policy does not sort of rise to the top of the agenda. So when you have a series of debates, and we're recording this obviously a week after the first debate, we don't know if there will be a second debate or a trans health condition, but the moderators have to pack a lot into that. And unfortunately for those of us who looked at foreign policy, it wasn't addressed at all in the first debate. It's meant to be addressed in the second or third, but I don't think it will be a major part because we have an international pandemic that is wreaking havoc with the country, very severe recession, possibly the worst since the 1929 to 33 Great Depression, and almost a constitutional crisis of questions about the election, whether or not there will be a peaceful transfer of power. So I think the foreign policy questions, no, they're always marginalized. I think on this occasion, they've really been crowded out. We try to compensate for that, of course, at Brookings and other places by writing about it and talking about it. But I don't think it's what the voters will be making their decision on for the most part. Although Trump's role in the world, the way in which it interacts with others, I think that is on the agenda. It is on the ballot. But more specific questions, uh, much as I would like to see them raised, I think, you know, are unlikely to be prominent. I definitely want to dive deeply into those questions about what a Trump foreign policy and a second term would look like versus a Biden foreign policy if he wins the election in just a moment. But kind of back to this general question of foreign policy issues in presidential elections, would voters be more likely to respond to issues that have to do with alliances and governance and treaties, you know, international relations kind of issues, the U.S. standing in the world, or insofar as voters do respond to these issues in elections, is it more about threats and conflicts, trade wars even? Certainly on occasion in the past, it has been to do with external threats. In 2004, a few days before the election, Osama bin Laden released a video. It's widely seen as helping George W. Bush because it reminded them about the terrorist threat. And Bush had an advantage on that at the time. 
So that does happen. I think on this occasion, it's a little bit different, I think. So I think what's happening in terms of how people factor foreign policy in is if you like President Trump's style and you like the fact that he is waging a struggle against experts and Washington and upsetting people like me and generally pushing back against what he would call the deep state and all of that and questioning alliances and trade deals and the international aspect of that you probably like too, right? You like the fact that he's saying the US is getting ripped off and that he's not getting along with Merkel. And so it's all part of a package, which is basically Trump the rebel and Trump sort of the disruptor. And if you don't like that and you think Trump is a terrible president because he's playing fast in the new sort of American democracy and he's not behaving presidentially in office and he's not having a due process on domestic policy or legal matters, then you're probably also in the camp that says, I really don't like the way he's treating the allies. I really don't like the way he's playing fast and loose with the liberal international order and that he's breaking loose of all these constraints. So I think depending on where you come down, when you see something he does internationally, it's probably sort of a Rothschild test in terms of how you interpret it. And then those international events, his foreign policy feeds into that domestic politics and the voting decision. So it's all sort of part of a narrative on one side or the other side. Well, I want to go back to what you said a few minutes ago about the debate, the presidential debate that we saw last week now. I had almost no mention of foreign policy. I think China may have come up one time, but only in reference to the coronavirus pandemic. Are there any issues, I mean, maybe it's China or maybe it's Russia, that you think even remotely are affecting the presidential election? Or is it more of this, what you're talking about, kind of like a larger voter perception of, well, I already like Trump and I like what he's doing, so I'm going to stick with him, or I prefer a change with Biden. I mean, are there really issues that people are going to look at relations with Russia or relations with China, and I'm going to base my vote on that? Yeah, I think it depends on how you code the coronavirus, you know, because the coronavirus could be categorized as a foreign policy issue. It came from abroad. It's a lot of pandemics have long been listed along with terrorism and climate change and Nuclear proliferation is one of those transnational challenges. It normally falls within the national security foreign policy arena. I mean, obviously, there's a big public health component too, but it tended to be discussed before it happened more on the foreign policy side than it did in the domestic policy side. And, you know, if one accepts that, then the argument would be that this international event has completely upended the election and how President Trump has handled it internationally has affected his standing domestically. So imagine if he not only were to be more on top of it at home, but was to rally the international community and the U.S. was chairing the G7 this year, if it was to bring the G7 together and have a coordinated response and work in lockstep with Merkel and Johnson and others, Morrison in terms of Abe on the response to the virus, maybe it would look pretty different. But instead, by investing most of his foreign policy efforts in the virus and what to name it and to try to name it after China and to highlight other countries doing badly as a sign that the US is doing better and all of that, I think, has damaged him. So again, I think it depends how we interpret it, but you could make the argument that foreign policy is a major part of the election precisely because of the pandemic, although obviously that's mainly because it's wreaking havoc domestically. So if there is another debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, 
And if one of the themes is foreign policy issues, imagine if you were to be advising President Trump on preparing for the debate, how would you advise him to talk about the successes of his foreign policy over the last three and a half years? Well, firstly, I don't think he listens to advice from anyone. (laughs) He definitely wouldn't listen to it from me. I can say what I think he'll say and also what I think will happen maybe if he were to be reelected. I think he would say that the U.S. is getting ripped off by the rest of the world, that previous leaders were idiots and didn't know what they were doing, and that he was the first one to stand up and to push back, and that he basically created leverage that he then used to cut these deals, which are amazing for America. And the U.S. has said, take care of itself and not be looking after allies or others. And he's purely transactional. And he'd point to the agreement of normalization between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain as a sign of his deal-making prowess and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, partial withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the new trade deal with Canada and Mexico. And Maybe not so much about the one about China because of the coronavirus, but he previously would have mentioned that. And he basically say, look, you may think I'm crazy, but I'm fighting on your behalf and I'm going to cut the best deals we possibly can get, right? Now, I think that before the coronavirus, and I'd written this at the time, I think his main objective since last September, so since a year ago, was to position himself as a deal maker, right? He's always had two images of himself. He's both the militarist and a dealmaker. And the militarist is sort of the guy who's more aggressive than anyone else, willing to do more extreme things than anyone else. The dealmaker is the art of the deal. And these are just images of himself in his own mind. And they are not always compatible, right? And so I think he pivoted away from the militarism last September with a view to trying to cut these deals. There's been a number of times where he's veered off track, like with the Soleimani killing and the virus, obviously, the pandemic. But I think he's sort of back to that now, but he's trying to head off the past perception that he's a warmonger. So he's trying to emphasize these deals, right? And so I think that's his main stick at the moment. Well, I want to ask you the same kind of question about Joe Biden and his foreign policy successes. But obviously, he was the vice president under Obama for eight years. And as I think about that question, it occurs to me that the answer might be more bound up in the pieces that you've written recently that are looking ahead to what a President Biden foreign policy might look like. Because I think a lot of the analysis that you put into these pieces, it does refer back to Obama's foreign policy, almost inevitably. So I'd like to kind of switch gears now away from issues in the election and think about the implications of the election for U.S. foreign policy if Joe Biden becomes president, or if Donald Trump wins a second term. So kind of in that context, could we start with what a Biden administration foreign policy might look like? So the first point is that Joe Biden in the election has been correctly able to draw dramatic contrast with Trump by just stating things that previously would have been fairly generic and obvious, right? So for Biden to say, I'm in favor of America's alliances and I support NATO. Normally, that will be the sort of typical thing someone would say, but it wouldn't tell you very much because everyone sort of says it right now. Anyone's in opposition, they say the president hasn't done enough with allies. We need to do more with allies. But usually then they have to go further, right, because both candidates are sort of saying that. On this occasion, Trump is not saying that. He's saying the opposite. And so actually it is legitimate for Biden to say, 
I'm in favor of alliances, and that's a significant contrast. The issue, though, is that it doesn't tell you a huge amount about what it would be like in office, right? Because that's a big, wide sort of statement that covers a lot of different things and there's a lot of variance within it. So I think what's been happening is there's been sort of two debates occurring in parallel. There's the Trump-Biden discussion, not just the debate, but the broader discussion and division. And then there's the discussion amongst Democrats about what they would do if they went back in. And the second one, while it has generally occurred in public view, has been sort of neglected. And I think what will happen is if Biden wins decisively, then after the election, attention will turn to that question. And it won't just be how is Biden different to Trump, it'll be how is Biden different to Obama, if at all. Will there be a big difference? Is this Obama term three or is it something fundamentally different? And, you know, I've written about in some of those pieces that there is, I think, an internal debate which one can track because much of it is published on a variety of things where you have sort of two broad camps, one restorationist that will go back to the Obama worldview, updated for events, of course, and taking into account the pandemic, of course, and changes in China, but broadly speaking, the same worldview, and then those who might want to break with that worldview in some significant ways. We don't know, I think, how that will net out, because I would say that Vice President Biden's worldview is broadly compatible with either approach. And so I suspect it will be arbitrated during the presidency and that we'll see that be a fault line or a dividing line a little bit in the presidency. Um, So I think he will be pro-alliances. He'll want to get back into multilateralism, all of that. But the big question is, what version of that will we see? I would like to drill down a little bit more into what you call the intra-democratic debate on foreign policy. And you write about this one case that you talk about extensively is policy towards China. So can you kind of unpack what the two views in the Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment would look like with regard to policy in a Biden administration toward China? Yeah, you know, I think Obama pushed back against China, but he was also wary of having his policy defined by geopolitical competition. And he wanted to have a healthy bilateral relationship with cooperation as shared issues. Early on, they did believe in this sort of convergence theory that as China integrated more into the global economy, it would become more of a responsible stakeholder internationally and that it wasn't sort of revisionist. They began to doubt that, I think, over the course of the administration. But at the end of the administration, competition with China wasn't sort of a central organizing principle. There was an expectation. There were people who dissented from that within the administration. There was an expectation when Hillary Clinton was looking like she would win, that Clinton would shift in a more geopolitical great power direction, that she would be more competitive toward China. She didn't win, of course. Trump won. His team made great power competition the centerpiece of his administration, although he never really bought into it himself. But it's in the official documents. And now the question is, if Biden were to win, does he sort of continue with a much more competitive approach to China more competitive than Obama, or does he sort of go back to this more balanced approach to say, well, we'll stand up for our interests, but we'll also try to forge cooperation on these transnational challenges, and that their expectations of that will be pretty high. I think it's highly likely that they will be more competitive, that they'll be tougher or more hardline than Obama, both because I think that's where the world is headed, and there's also pressure from Congress, and there's many people in Biden world who believe that as well. But I think it's a bit of an open question. We don't know 
exactly where that will come out. And I think it depends in part on who is in these key positions as well. But I would just point out that there's a number of pieces written by former Obama administration officials, including one piece by Kirk Campbell, who was the Assistant Secretary for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, and Eli Ratner, who was Joe Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor, basically arguing that successive presidents had gotten China wrong because of the core assumptions about liberalization and responsible stakeholderism, and that there needed to be a much more tough-minded approach to China that sort of acknowledged that they wouldn't converge with the US and other democracies internationally. So I think we'll see that debate probably play out in the early days and first year of the administration. Another major foreign policy issue that I know is top of mind for many Americans, because we've been living with it for so long, that you discuss in the article is the Middle East. So just as another example of how a Biden administration exemplify that discussion, that tension between two different viewpoints and how to deal with a major foreign policy issue, what would you say on the Middle East question? This is one area where I think our colleagues and former colleagues have been particularly vocal. So Mara Carlin and Tamara Wittes wrote a pretty influential piece of foreign affairs. Our former colleague Martin Indyk wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal headline, the Middle East just isn't worth it anymore. There has, I think, among centrists been a rethinking of the Middle East. And I would say it's sort of like the pivot for real. We really have to pivot this time, that it's not as important to see other regions, the U.S. is overly invested. So that's been sort of striking, I think, the extent to which that debate has taken hold. I think sometimes it's slightly mischaracterized as military intervention and would the U.S. intervene in Syria or Iraq. That's an element of it, but I actually think any president would probably maintain the capability to do that because of the terrorism problem and because they don't want to see ISIS reemerge. The real thing to watch I think it's a relationship with the key Arab allies. And is there a significant rethinking of that with Saudi Arabia, maybe the UAE with Egypt? And I think that could happen. Like if Joe Biden has been a critic of Saudi Arabia for some time now, there's still, I think, a lot of anger over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, feeling that MBS got away without much sanction from that. So I think that that sort of debate will play out again in sort of the first year. And it will really come down to, is the U.S. trying to reassure the Gulf Arab allies that it's going to play its traditional role and has their back and generally favors their view of competition with Iran? Or will there be a much sort of higher bar threshold for involvement and pressure on them as well as on Iran to come to some sort of agreement for new equilibrium in the region? The last question on a theoretical Biden administration foreign policy, and that is about what certainties do you see in any Biden administration foreign policy, especially as compared to what you see possible with a Trump administration foreign policy? For example, I would assume that a Biden administration would put high value on continuing strong relationships with our transatlantic allies like Germany, Britain, NATO, for example a pretty forthright posture toward Russian expansionism and other kinds of issues like that. On that, I think the Biden team will, I wouldn't say try to be boring because that's the wrong way to put it, but I think they won't try to defy expectations, right? So if you look at the VP choice, Kamala Harris is the front runner at the beginning and she ended up getting it. 
there was a process that created a little bit of commentary, but they sort of did what you expected them to do, right? And I think that foreign policy would be sort of the same. Like, we won't be watching press conferences at NATO headquarters saying, what will the president say? Like, will he endorse Article 5 or will he not endorse Article 5? And does that mean the NATO will be at an end? You'll have a much more level-headed approach. I think that there's not a lot of surprises. I do think the one thing that will be interesting to watch is this larger strategic debate about how exactly they define their interests, what they want to do. I expect that will be fairly well telegraphed and formalized in terms of the process. But I, I think for the most part, it will be and it will seem much more conventional in the sense that there won't be as many surprises coming from the US side. They will be trying to sort of reassert some of those sort of core principles. But then, of course, there's a lot of room for variance then in implementation and also an interpretation of that. Well, let's now pivot to what foreign policy might look like in a second Trump administration. And I'm going to quote here from your recent piece in The Atlantic, which is titled, What a Second Trump Term Would Mean for the World. And you write, and I'll quote, if Donald Trump defies the odds and wins a second term, the next four years will likely be more disruptive to U.S. foreign policy and world affairs than the past four have been. If he wins again, friend and foe alike will accept that the post-World War II period of American leadership has come to a definitive end. I don't mean to uh, frighten people too much, but I think with the first term, because he was not particularly prepared and because he didn't really have to have any people who believed what he believed and people didn't even really know that he believed what he believed, even though I think it was pretty obvious if you looked, but there was some ambiguity there that for much of the first term, he was sort of fighting with people who had a more of a mainstream view, right? So for the first year and a half or two years almost, he fought with Jim Mattis about what the Pentagon would do. And he kept ordering things and Mattis kept not doing them and slow rolling and interpreting in different ways. And then he went through another Secretary of Defense and then he ended up with Mark Esper, who he's had mixed relations with, but who has generally been more compliant with Trump, right, than Mattis had been. If there's a second term, Esper's definitely gone. I think you start off with the person who'll do whatever Trump wants. And that will be the same across the board. So there won't be any real internal resistance anymore. You know, and Trump will view this as a massive personal vindication. It will become even more hyper-personalized than it is now. And we'll go from there. Right. So basically, we won't be going through the time consuming process in the first term of these basic debates about whether or not to do a Trump wants or to have the traditional approach. We'll just start right out on Trump. So that's the first point. I think he'll be surrounded by loyalists from the beginning. They'll also have a better idea of what they want to do because they do have experience from the first term. So they sort of know the way things work now. They know what they want to try to do. So I think he will also probably fall back on the only thing he has to fall back on, which are his visceral instincts about the world, right? So he doesn't like allies, doesn't really like free trade deals. He likes authoritarian leaders. And so he'll fall back on that. So I think those elements will become more acute, more pronounced. And then in terms of the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world has for the last four years been waiting to see if this is permanent or temporary. And 
They think it might be permanent, actually. They've always thought it's probably permanent, but they don't know for sure. And in recent months, obviously, they think it might be more temporary because Biden's done so well and Trump has done so badly in the polls. But if Trump wins again, I think then you'll see an acceptance that the U.S. is basically out of the game. Things are fundamentally altered and they will make decisions to adjust to that. So adversaries may become more assertive, particularly Russia, but also allies like Turkey, who've been quite problematic, Erdogan could take advantage. And the allies, I think, will lose confidence in the alliance. Now, it won't all collapse immediately, but I think things will begin to happen that have not happened to date. And in a way, it's a little bit like, to use the pandemic analogy, in the first term, the immune system of the international order has been sort of stripped away. And... In the second term, there is no immune system. So whatever happens now, I think, will tilt world politics in one direction or another. The confrontation over Nagorno-Karabakh is a good example. The U.S. is basically absent. So that will just take whatever course it's going to take. That's the fight between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And yeah, you know, and we'll see that in a variety of other areas, too, I think, where world events now will occur without great American engagement if Trump is reelected. So you mentioned that Western allies might do things that have never been done before in a second Trump term. What kinds of things would allies like Germany and France and Italy or even Canada, would they seek their own relations with some of America's adversaries like China and Russia? Or would they seek other kinds of trade deals or other kinds of relationships that they haven't sought before? I think Europe is an interesting example. I mean, I think they'll wait to see in part if Trump does actually try to pull back from NATO in a significant way. The French would definitely like to see more European movements on a common defense policy and European sovereignty, as they call it. There's some resistance to that inside Europe. And also, I think there's a question about its European capacity to do that, but they would like to see that happen. But I think psychologically, the recognition will be there that they don't have the U.S. anymore, You know that the U.S. will not only not lead on multilateralism and transnational threats, it may be a primary obstacle to European interests on it. You know, like it may be an opponent on climate progress or on a cooperative response to the pandemic or on maintaining an open global economy. So I think they may be tempted to retreat behind European borders to try to have some safety, be a bit more protectionist themselves. Eastern Europe, I think, will want to have their own relationship with Trump because many of those countries like Poland and Hungary get on pretty well with the Trump administration. So they may try to almost decouple a little bit from the European Union while maintaining membership of it and have their own sort of bilateral relationship with the US. So I think there's lots of things that will occur on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis will seem incremental, but on the whole will aggregate into pretty dramatic shifts. And then, of course, if there's a crisis then all of that is dramatically accelerated, right? So I would worry a lot about second term. And I guess the analogy I was just finished on here is that if you look at immigration policy, Trump started out by saying, I'm only against illegal immigration. I just want to fix elements of it. By the end of the administration, they're trying to end legal immigration as well as illegal immigration, basically completely, as far as I can tell, become very radicalized. Something similar is possible on NATO, possible on trade, on authoritarianism. You just will potentially see this radicalization during the term. I wanted to ask, as we wrap up here, 
what you think, no matter who wins, some of the biggest foreign policy challenges in the next few months are going to be. But it kind of feels like we are in a wait and see period. I'm going to quote Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. where he says that we're in the deep breath before the plunge. And we just don't know. And so much depends on who wins the election, who's inaugurated president in January. I think it's a very uncertain period. I think there's one thing we know for sure, right? So we know that the pandemic will continue for a while and that it will be a defining challenge for the U.S. and for the world, probably until next summer, hopefully, if there's a vaccine. So that, I think, is the overwhelming international challenge. And I think it is fair to say that if Trump is re-elected, you won't see a major change in how the U.S. is handling it. You know, he'd probably fire Fauci pretty early on. He'll just basically try to muddle on through till there's a vaccine. He'll be highly nationalistic about the vaccine if it's American. And there'll be very little international cooperation. There'll be really no effort with like-minded countries to repair the international architecture and infrastructure, particularly in public health and global public health. And on the economy, he'll have basically zero interest in trying to reopen the world economy in a way that is cooperative and returns to this openness and getting rid of some of the protectionist measures. They may even go in the opposite direction. So in that Trump piece you mentioned, I talk about the late 1940s, which we all look at as like the late 1940s in foreign policy, US foreign policy are like the founding fathers in the American constitutional development, right? It's where it all started. And in the late 1940s, Harry Truman was president. He was relatively unknown, had been vice president just for a few months, but he turned out to be one of America's greatest presidents. While the vice president who preceded Truman was Henry Wallace, who had been ardently sort of pro-Soviet, against containment, didn't really like Europe very much, didn't want the US to be engaged. One of the great counterfactuals of history is if Wallace had been president, right, if FDR hadn't dumped him from the ticket, just months before he died, before FDR died, then what would have happened? I think we're in a similar sort of moment here, right? So this post-pandemic period is going to be crucial. And the question is, do we have a traditionalist who will try to assert sort of US leadership and play that traditional role, that's Biden, or do we have our Watts, right, who basically does the opposite? And You know, I think if he does the opposite, I think that will have repercussions, not just for the four years, but really well beyond that. Because I think at that point, things just begin to take on a life of their own. And there's really very little putting the genie back in the bottle. Well, I love ending this conversation on a historical note as we simultaneously look ahead to the next month. and If not optimistic. (laughs) Yes. Um, As always, Tom Wright, thank you for sharing with us your time and your expertise on these very important matters. Great. Thanks so much. I look forward to talking with you again. Thanks. Brookings Cafeteria podcast is made possible with the help of an amazing team of colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. 
The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. Thank you.